Hey everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here with a fan favorite and one of my personal favorites, repeat guest, John Henson. Welcome back. Thank you so much. So good to see you. I have not seen you in a while. I know, it really has been a long time. It's been a minute, as the kids would say. Mm-hmm. Uh Look at you keeping up with the slang. <laughs> with the jargon. <laughs> with the jargons. That's right. So uh, fill me in. Fill me in on everything. What's been going on with you? I just know dribs and drabs from emails with you where right. you'll be like, yeah, I'm working on this and I'm doing this and I know you traveled a lot. And yeah. What's been um, going on? It's been good. It's been, uh, it's been surprisingly uh, busy. I did a lot of stand-up last summer and last fall. I was on the road quite a bit. Um, and then... Uh, um, I, uh, let's see, um, I just hosted a, another season of Halloween Baking Championship for Food Network, nice. so that will be starting, I think, in like a week or so. And uh, where was that? Because you were in... In New Orleans. Yeah. Is that where it always is? Uh, that was where it's, it's been the both years I've done it, and I think, uh, I think I'll probably end up doing it next year, too. It's a lot of fun. I love the people. This is a great season, um, and uh, the people that I work with are just uh, fantastic. Um, at Leslie Thomas, the EP, is amazing, very funny, and they just kind of let you do whatever you want. It's a lot of improv. So that was fun. Uh, New Orleans is a blast and um, did a lot of traveling. Um, I've been out of town a bunch. I've been out of town for almost all the summer and then we're going to move. My wife and uh, my kids and I are moving. It's just a couple of miles, but it's, uh, you know, turns your life upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm going to host uh, the Rocky Mountain Emmys uh, in September in, uh, in Phoenix, which should be fun. Um, what are the Rocky Mountain Emmys? They're local Emmys. Um, you know, there's Emmys all all mm-hmm. over the the country, and um, and so I'm going to host this uh, award show, which should be a lot of fun. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, I got um, you know a couple of uh, I sold a, a, a news format to a syndication company. I'm getting ready to start a pilot for we're going to shoot four, four pilot episodes in September. Congratulations. What is it? Um it's uh it's just a, it's you know I I sat down with these guys. So last year, last summer, and I don't know that I maybe I got to tell you guys about this. Uh I did a game show for Judge Judy. Yes, I watch. Uh, I witness. I witness, right. So that did <laughs> I, like the, I was, watch is a product you can buy. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh there was like a 6 week on-air test in a bunch of different markets and it it uh it did it was a lot of fun to do. It did not end up selling mm. as uh, as they said um and I think I might have explained this but the concept was we show you videos and then we quiz you about things you may or may not have noticed. Very fascinating coming from Judge Judy's legal perspective, sort of a commentary on how fallible eyewitness testimony is. Mm -hmm. One of the weakest forms of evidence you can have. Um, So I thought it was very interesting. Um, But they came back and said, uh, 
Yeah, people don't like to pay attention when they watch TV. It's, <laughs> right. It's too much work. There's the there's the tweeting and the scrolling. That and has it's to you know, they just kinda want it to wash over them. They want to be able to go to the bathroom and come back and not be lost. So you know, you had to yeah. you had to really focus to be able to play the game. And it was like people were like, Yeah, it's fun, it's just a little stressful, you know, <laughs> trying to relax. Um but the company that did that, Deb Marr, uh and I sat down and talked and and um and so uh they asked me what I wanted to do and I as I think you know have been very immersed in um politics news mm-hmm. and politics and and uh so I, I pitched a um a format sort of a news wrap up show um you know the idea in my head was that news is very segregated it's like you go here for your hard news and mm-hmm. then you go to a different place for your entertainment news and then maybe a third place for sports news and then you go to lifestyle blogs or you know and so i was uh i sort of pitched the idea of doing a very fast-paced um wrap-up of all of the relevant stories of the day but just a nutshell of it like Mm -hmm. literally you're just covering stories in three or four sentences it's like i'm just giving you the essence of what happened it's sort of the like twitter moments sort of yeah and it's it's like the opposite of what John Oliver does so well and which I enjoy watching, which is the deep dive where he'll, you know, spend a 17 minutes on a, a subject and really get inside it. This is like, I'm literally just glossing. I'm just going to tell you the basics of it mm-hmm. um, and then move on. Um, That's so interesting. What It's so funny because today I was <clears throat> I was thinking about writing and I was thinking that as a, a writer... I feel like my strength was always taking a small moment and really expanding on it versus taking like versus like writing a history book or something right. where you choose which fa- you know you you take a bunch of material and you you synthesize it and put it in a timeline and sort of give a a broad overview of something like right. that's very hard for me and I actually think it's hard because I was it requires a lot of confidence it requires a person to say I am confident in choosing which facts to include and right, to, and to, to lay it call. out. Yeah. yeah, and I think people are sort of oriented toward one or the other. Have you always been someone who would rather give like a, here's the bullets? Well, here's the uh, interesting part. You kind of put your finger on something. The concept to me, uh, for me, was inspired by a book that my brother gave me years ago called The Dictionary of Cultural Literacy. Mm by E.D. Hirsch. There's a couple of different volumes. They've even got a volume for kids. But E.D. Hirsch coined the term cultural literacy, and his uh, sort of theory behind it was that there is a baseline of information that you need to know to be fluent in a particular culture. And so this is a big, thick book, but it literally has a synopsis Mm -hmm. of everything you need to know to be a well-read adult politics, science, medical, art, you know, like every different discipline, tech, everything you could want to know, but it's, it it literally is just the, the reader's digest version of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just found that fascinating. And I, my idea was like, if you're going to watch TV for half an hour and you, you know, you're going to go to a party that night or you got lunch with your boss the next day and you just want to know, you just want to be able to follow a conversation. If something topical comes up, you want to know what's going on. Um, and keep it quick and, 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 um, and lighthearted. And, um, so, uh, I literally, I was like, let's just do the show and just call it the basics, you know? And I don't know if that title will stick. I don't know. Look, let's be realistic. I don't know in today's 
culture in both the entertainment industry and politically in this culture, Mm -hmm. if a straight white man doing left-leaning political comedy is going to be a big win in the heartland. (laughs) Um, But uh, it ain't my job to talk him out of it. And it's something that I feel passionate about. So um, I wanted to do it. So we're going to shoot four episodes in in late September. I'm excited about that. We just staffed up. And um, so, yeah. um, And it will be comedy? Yeah, it'll be funny. It'll be lighthearted. You know, and it's, and it's, you know, it's so, like if I'm doing a sports story and you're not into sports, who cares? Because in 25 seconds, I'm going to be talking about something else. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And, um, but I read like a day, I had to write up a day of news stories just as sort of a proof of concept. And it was the day that John Bolton was hired national security director and, uh, or national security advisor rather. Um, <clears throat> um, and, uh, and I remember like just like, you know, it, it seemed funny to me, inherently funny to reduce these complex stories to a few sentences. Mm. Like, I think I just said something like, uh, uh, we begin with the end of days. <laughs> uh, a Fox News commentator and World War Three advocate John Bolton was just named National Security Advisor. I think the relevance of this appointment can best be summed up by former Nixon White House attorney John Dean, who tweeted, we are all going to die. And then I just moved on. You know what I mean? And it's, so it's that kind of thing. It's just very, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of rapid fire and it's uh, satirical. But, you know, the idea is that the comedy doesn't come at the expense of actually providing a synopsis of the news story. So um, it sounds really good. You know, I, I, I'm too deep into it to know if it sounds good to anybody but me. But, you know, I'm looking forward to doing it. It's fun when you get to when you get to, like, really sink your teeth into an idea. And um, so uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to work on. And I'm just sort of of the mind that, like, you know, if you go and you do a good job and you're passionate about it, something good will come from it, you know. Um, the, You said something one of the times you were on that before you – go to an audition or before you do a job, you like have a moment with yourself in the car and I don't know if you pray or just sort of talk to yourself and like wish to do the best job you can or to like be in the service of Re- be of remind- service to yes. the idea. Yeah. yeah. Be of service to the show, be a service to the concept. Yeah. Like get out of yourself. And I have, that's become invaluable to me. Um, I've started doing that before live appearances and things when I just feel like my brain is spinning out and it like I've really found it helps kind of ground me and remind me of like like there's a reason I'm about to step on stage and, right. and I want to get back in touch with that. I don't want to just be reacting. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, it, it's something that I just started doing and it, and it I don't know, for me, it helps me be present. It's very easy in these high pressure situations for it to become an out of body experience. And it's like you're hearing yourself talk and going, what is happening right now? And, um, I just find that if I, um, if I get out of the, the idea of what I want from Mm -hmm. it and look at what I can give to it, what can I, can I, how can I do the best job possible for these people? How can I make the most of this situation for these guys and give them what they want? It helps me be a little bit more present and it, and it like, it calms me down. I'm a little more grounded and focused and, um, uh, I just find that I do a better job that way. What was judge Judy like? Really wealthy. 
Um, <laughs> Isn't she's she the, like she, the wealthiest woman, or she's made the most in TV? Or yeah, she's, she's the highest there's paid some person. metric. Yeah, yeah. She is. Um, is. She little. She she's like like Hummel, like something <laughs> you would put on a shelf. Little. Um, she is. I I will tell you, she is uh, absolutely a hundred percent different than I expected. She is. Uh, warm and sweet and supportive and outgoing. Uh, I shot this uh, game show that she had created and she came. I didn't know she was there. And I, like we were, so my first day of taping and we were like through two of five shows that day and somebody came back and went, Judge Judy wants to meet you. And I was like, holy shit. You know, like, like you know, you don't think it's like that. If there is a Mount Rushmore of television, mm-hmm. you know, Judy's on it. You yeah. know, this is a woman who's made like $800 million, you know. Uh, so she came in and she was just very, like, I just wanted to say, I'm so glad you're on board. And um, she was very, I was really surprised at how um, accessible she was. Mm-hmm. You right. Because on her show, she's a, so acerbic. Yeah. And, uh, but she was, wearing so she's she's wearing a leather jacket and uh of course it's probably a 14 billion dollar leather jacket <laughs> because she's judge judy and i i when i shook her hand i reached out and touched her elbow and the jacket was so soft that it literally stopped all thinking that i had in my head and i go it's so nice to meet you and i touched her elbow and i go oh my god what why is this so soft what is it made out of children and uh and she literally she just looked at me and it was like we had a moment where she just went I'm just going to pretend you never said that. And, uh, but that was so great. Like, I, I was like, did that just come out of my mouth? The other thing I think I remember saying to her is, uh, Judy, when I found out you created this show, I was like, yeah, but what's she ever done that panned out? Um, but she was really sweet. She had a great sense of humor. And, um, you know, uh, uh, I was really, uh, I was really surprised, uh, by how warm she was. Do you think she was bummed that that show didn't go? Or is it I like. I think she's just a competitive, smart person. I think she's just a very, I mean, this woman is so shrewd that uh when people were bidding for the the um when she was she was she was in a contract year mm-hmm. like this was like three to five years ago and um she goes uh i want uh i want to own my entire tape library i want you to give me the rights and ownership of every show I've ever shot. And this was at a time when they were like, they didn't see any value in it. And they went, all right, yeah, Mm -hmm. whatever, you know. Three years later, she sold it back to them for $125 million. Wow. So, I mean, this is a woman who is very, very shrewd. Um, uh, You know, her successes... um, it may be a fluke in the in the in how popular the show has become, but her business acumen mm. is not. And um, so I think she, you know, I think she looks around and goes, "What else can I do?" You know, I mean, it's a, it, her and her husband are retired judges. You know, they were living off of their pensions, like they lived in a little two bedroom apartment, and you know, somebody came to her and asked her if she would. She was perfectly happy and was like, "Yeah, all right, I'll do it." You know, and then. Now she makes like $45 million a year. Right. That's probably one of many children hide coats. Right. I mean, it really was 
shockingly soft. <laughs> it, I, I can't impress upon you the fact that I was like, it, do you dip this in butter every time you take it off? I couldn't believe it. But um, so that was that was a lot of fun. So before we started recording, we were talking a bit about maturity and mm-hmm. what that means and like, you know, how you become mature, how you feel like you've become mature. Is business acumen something that you have always respected? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think so because my, uh, I'm my father's son and my dad, uh, was very, he was very into business. He was, um, you know, my dad was very, uh, successful in, in the business world, but he was also, um, he was a self-made man, you know. And, what did he do again? He was in the computer industry, mm-hmm. and and something um, for IBM. He worked for IBM for a number of years, and then he was uh, president of a of a couple of different uh, Fortune five hundred computer companies. He did very well for himself, but um, but with him, it was always about like live below your means. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up like he pounded, pounded, pounded the idea of compounding interest into us, you know. I don't even know what that is. Compounding interest is like the idea that like if you invest a dollar at uh, 7%, it doubles every 12 years. If you mm. invest a dollar at uh, 10%, it doubles every seven years, if you, you know, and, and, and so on. I think I'm doing that math right. Um uh, but you know, that means in, uh, 14 years, uh, it's $4 and in 21 mm-hmm. years it's $8. And, and he was like, that is how you become independent. You know, there are famous stories about, you know, men who never made more than 25, 27 grand a year, but they saved their money and they didn't touch it. And they, they had that discipline to withhold their gratification and let that money work for them. You know, as my dad always used to say, let your money work for you while you sleep. And, and, um, that's how you grow wealth exponentially. You know, the other option is you just have to like make a job, get a job where you make gazillions of dollars, but it's, it's a hell of a lot easier to spend than it is to make it. And his Mm -hmm. thing was always like, you know, pay yourself first, pay yourself first. And then if you get to the point where you can't pay your cable bill after you've put your money in the bank, then you cut your cable, Mm -hmm. you know, and you live below your means. And have um, you done that? And by the way, I have to say, before we started, you uh, congratulated me on my husband and me buying a house, which is a big deal. And thank you. Congratulations, because you don't do that unless you've been smart with your money. Thank you. Um, Although it's funny, the fact that we're in our early 40s and just bought our first home years ago, like would not be a measure of success. But I think now it, it, it in this town, in this market, like, I was going to say, yeah. you know, buying your first home in your 40s in LA means uh, you would have like 40 acres if you lived in another part of the country. I right. mean, it really is ridiculous. Here. You can get a palace in another area of the country for a down payment in LA. Oh, I, mean, that just oh, I know. I know. Because while you're looking for a home... I think everyone in this town periodically is like, how much could I get somewhere else? And you're like, holy shit. But anyway, so uh, I was feeling good about the congratulations and about what I've accomplished. However, now that we're talking about compounding interest and what your money's doing for you, it's just opened up a whole new area of anxiety of like, oh man, I'm totally neglecting that area of life. Well, I mean, I guess a house is actually an investment. But yeah, and then if you buy well, yeah. it'll appreciate. And um, but no, I'm not like well in 
invested in terms of It's a of hell of a lot better about. of an investment than rent, right? Because yeah. rent, you're not getting a tax write-off. Right. Although, you know, arguably now under- It's changed, It's right. changed. Um, but, you know, there, you know, when you're- you're never going to get that money back mm-hmm. when you pay rent. Right. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. if you can pay 50% more and then you get equity in the house, right. it's obviously better for you in the long run. Well, according to Redfin, the house has already gone up, but I don't know if that's real. <laughs> but Redfin it makes me feel good. Redfin and Zillow and all of those things, Trulia, they're all, you know, especially like Zillow is predicated on city records, mm-hmm. right? The updating of city records. Well, how often do you think they update city records? When a house Not sells, often, yeah. do you think that they immediately plug that into a right. system? Or no. do you think that they're six or eight or nine months behind? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that, in, I mean, I'm guessing that there, in fact, I think there is a lawsuit against the whole concept of Zestimate. Oh, really? Because... People think that it's off. A lot of it is because of that lag time, yeah, you know, and and entering home sales into the into the city records. I have to check what our for anyone who's wondering, your Zestimate is your Zillow estimate. Zillow estimate. Yeah, uh, I'll have to check what our Zestimate is. Yeah, and it'll tell you what you could rent it for, and right? All that kind of stuff. But um, but no, I mean it's you know um, I mean that's a whole. Other, it's just the way I was raised. Like you know we. You know, odds are Social Security and Medicare or Medicaid will not right. exist in the way it exists today when we're retiring. And, um, and you know, I think it's probably um, far too common that people are not, they're living for today. You told a story last time you were on about um, you decided to go into showbiz and you were at home for, I don't know if it was Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, oh, yeah. with, uh, your I think, your brothers and their wives and your girlfriend. And your dad was like, listed all these nice things that one could have in a lifestyle and was like, and you're never going to have that, and you're yeah. never going to have that, and you're never going to have that. You're never going to own a brand new car. Yeah. You're never going to own your own home. Your kids will live in an apartment. They won't go to college, that kind of thing. And you said that it really galvanized you to it really motivated you like oh i have to succeed now yeah i mean i think it you know i think the phrase that i always use is it, it made it a steel cage death match like it became a it became it um yeah it it, it became uh personal how much does that echo in your head nowadays i mean that was you know 30 years ago so um, less now than it, it did in the years that followed. But, um, but I, you know, I, I, I've always tried to put a premium on standing on my own two feet, you know, and, uh, it's not easy to do. I mean, I'm I just recently realized that like, I've been doing what I've been doing now for 30 years. I've been doing it for 60% of my life. And, um, I feel very lucky to do that. Um, but you know, I've always said this that the, I, I've known guys uh, and girls over the course of my life who were far, far uh, funnier uh, or, or more talented than I am. Um, they they just may have had um, a struggle 
throwing a lasso around it and making it work for them. You know what I mean? There are people who I think are brilliantly talented when that muse hits them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They ha- it, it, It's like they're unable to recreate it. They're right. unable to harness it and and apply it like a job. You know what I mean? And um, uh, years ago, I, I may have even told you the story, but <clears throat> Jeff Stilson, who I used to do uh, stand-up with years ago and who, you know, was part of the... Uh, the Osbournes, one of the first reality shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, when I was a young comic, I was maybe 22, 23, and we went on the road together, and he was a few years older than me, and he would get up on the road every morning at 8, and he would write from night to f- 9 to 5. And I remember saying, Jeff, how can you do that? Don't you get burnt out? I mean, I was sleeping till noon and then rolling mm-hmm. joints all day. And and he, uh, he goes, the more I write, the easier it is to write. And I, but that, that made a big impression on me. Like he was working at a creative endeavor like it was his job. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who I think can stumble into moments of brilliance and really like channel some amazing, uh, performances or work or writing or whatever it is. Um, the the trick is to recreate it and it is it, it's you know i've known guys that you know um made me laugh harder than anybody else in the world but but it's it's a different deal when somebody points all the lights and the cameras at you and they go do it now mm-hmm. do it now do it again do it again do it again and and um and i don't think that's anything that comes naturally to anybody it's just something you have to like you have to make up your mind to to focus on and try to do do you ever feel creatively blocked? Uh, I have, certainly. Um, I think more, you know, you, sometimes you get to a point of creative exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, like I, uh, I loved stand-up. I started out as a comic and, and I was obsessed with it for seven years, you know, eight years. Um and when I had the opportunity to host Talk Soup, I I lost interest in stand-up. And that was, in retrospect, a huge mistake on my part because the guys that continued and never stopped when they got TV gigs are icons now, you know? Like um, who? Anybody from, you know... Uh, like Joe Rogan mm. or, or, you know, Louis CK or, um, you know, uh, any of that sort of era of comics. I mean, I was, you know, part of an era of comics that included guys like Dave Attell and Dave Chappelle and, um, you know, guys that are really, really brilliant. Mm. Um, and, and far better as a comic than I will ever be because they kept pressing and they kept growing to me, when I started working in television, I, you know, and, and I can't explain it any other way than this. I don't think it is the right way to look at it, and I wish I hadn't. But stand-up to me felt like the Etch-A-Sketch that I had had since I was 11, hmm. and TV was like a PlayStation 4. Hmm. Like, I just was obsessed with, it just was a whole new medium to hmm. explore. And um, that was, you know, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm a good comic, but... But I, I don't know, maybe I'm better suited to um, writing and hosting and, and, and producing. It just maybe is something that is a more creatively fascinating process for me, you know. But then again, I went through a period about, you know, five, six years ago where I was like, I 
want to go back and do stand-up again. And I, it had been like 16 years since I'd done stand-up. And I ironically, I remember seeing Joe Rogan uh, at the comedy, at the improv. And I was like, yeah, I'm getting ready to go on. I haven't done stand-up in 16 years. And he went, wow. Like, you know, he was like, good luck, dude. And, um, you know, it was something that I had like start from scratch, write a whole new hour again. Mm-hmm. And um, And then it was fresh, you know, and then I became obsessed with it again. So, you know, like I love doing talk soup, but after 1100 and some odd episodes, I was ready to do something else. What made you want to do stand up again? Uh, I think the challenge, Mm -hmm. you know, of like going, I used to be able to do that and watching guys and seeing, you know, there are guys that I, you know, somebody like a Tom Segura or a Bill Burr or, um, you know, guys that I, you know, Ari Shafir and, you know, watch their specials and just be in awe of them and think, you know, um, I wonder what it would be like going back, knowing what I know now and Mm -hmm. doing that again and having that experience again. And it's been so long, it would be fresh, you know? I mean, it's like if you eat pizza every day for seven years and then somebody turns you onto a steak, you're like, yeah, hook me up with some steak, bro. Mm. But then after 16 years, you're like, Pizza sounds really like good, pizza. you know? So it, it's, I, I've been lucky enough to be able to get to do a bunch of different things, work behind the camera, work in front of the camera. And, um, you know, uh, now I'm sort of trying to, you know, uh, produce and, and, and get into storyline and, mm-hmm. and, you know, scripted shows and, and, um, so it's it's um there's always something new to learn and it's always intimidating when you don't like look I'm intimidated by the podcast world you know we've talked about it I want to start a podcast but it's like oh, I don't know everybody's already doing it <laughs> nobody's going to listen and but I I want to explore it I want to see what it's like and I know that when I start I won't be anywhere near as good as anybody else is and I'll grow over time and you know that's kind of part of it you got to be willing to like roll up your sleeves and suck at the beginning and get better and better mm. and better that's you know, um, sort of. I personally think you will, you will be great from the moment you start, but I hear what you're saying about the discipline. No, it's just, um, yeah. I mean, I, like I remember when I started doing stand up in Boston in like 1987, 88. And I was like, I just remember thinking I have to get good at this and I don't care how long it takes. Mm. And I am not worried about humiliating myself along the way. I just want to get good at it, you know? And, um, you know, you have to be sort of obsessive compulsive like that to think really throw yourself into something. So stand up is such a discipline. Like the people who (laughs) do it all the time. Uh, Yeah. I don't know that you would call comics a disciplined group, but, um, (laughs) but I know it is a, it's It's funny. It's a lot of fucking work is what I mean to say. Well, yeah. And it's like, it's interesting to me because my wife came out of, my wife, Jill Benjamin came out of Chicago improv and it's to me, improv and stand up are opposite sides of Mm -hmm. the same coin. And I always find it immensely funny when people in the improv world are like, dude, I don't know how you do stand up. That's so terrifying. I'm like, I write it all ahead of time, you know? And they're like, yeah, but you're alone on stage and I have other people. So it's, you know, it's just, uh, it's very interesting. And my wife has done stand up and I've done improv, but it's like, um, I always say, like, I am never more attracted to my wife than I'm, when I'm watching her on stage. To me, watching my wife on stage is like a 36-hour Cialis. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, like, I just, I am I am in awe of my wife when she's on stage. She does a, um, a recurring show called Wizard Finger, uh, or like a... Uh, 
variety show. Mm-hmm. And uh, she used to do it monthly for like six, seven years. And then she just started bringing it back and oh, she's cool. done a couple of them. And I watch her on stage and um, I am like, I can't do that. Like what you're doing, what she does on stage is singular to her. It mm-hmm. is as individual as a fingerprint. And I just have so much respect for that, you know. Dan Rosen. Do you know Dan Rosen? I don't. He's a he's a former comedian, a great writer. Um, but years ago, I remember him saying, there's really two types of compliments that a comic gives. There's a comic that says like, hey, good job, when you're like, good job. And in your head, you're like, I could do that. <laughs> And then the other level is when you're like, I can't, I can't do what that person's doing. I'm not, you know? And, um, so I, I, you know, when I watch people, great improvisers work, it's like you're watching the Harlem Globetrotters. Mm-hmm. Like they just make it look easy. Did you do, did you do improv for a period I started time? out in improv. I started out in college in improv. I did an improv for like two or three years and then started trying stand up. And, and, um, as soon as I tried stand up, I just, you know fell in love with it, dropped out of college, moved to New York and um, became sort of obsessive about it. Mm-hmm. I had a question and I completely lost it. So I'm going to make note of this time code and Jeff can cut out me sounding okay. <laughs> like an idiot because it was right on the tip of my tongue. What was my question? Um, was it about maturity? Was it about no. comedy or writing? Or... It's, it's <laughs> definitely something like all of that. Oh, I know what it was. Actually, while we're not recording, I'll ask you if it's okay. To, I was going to ask what your thoughts on the whole Louis C.K. thing are because he's in the news today. Are you, are you okay answering that? If so, I'm, I will. Be uh, yeah, I don't know what I have to say, but I'm okay. I'm fine talking about it. Um, okay, let me uh, let me ask it again. So I wanted to ask you since you had mentioned him as someone you kind of came up with. What are your thoughts on the whole Louis C.K. situation? Because Today, he was in the news quite a bit because he just did a set at the Comedy Cellar. Yeah. And I guess like to a standing ovation. And so a lot of people are up in arms over like, it's only been 11 months. Why is he being welcomed back into this world? Right. Um, Yeah. There's so many valid viewpoints, I think, on either side of that. I mean, you know... First of all, they're like there's just the idea of where we are as a culture in um, recognizing and confronting uh, systemic sexual harassment mm-hmm. and, and sexual crime and, and abuse, right? I mean, you know, um, and that is, I think, a very, very important thing for uh our country to confront there's i feel like we are in a period where we are confronting a lot of ugly things about our culture right um i mean there's the division between conservatives and and liberals there's uh the sort of acknowledgement of like hey america has a lot of racist uncles (laughs) you know what i mean like there's just a that is yeah like oh we're not as progressive or we haven't progressed as much as people might have thought we had a couple, as much as I thought we had. And and you, I think you can make a strong case for the fact that um, marginalizing it and not confronting it and not talking about it has allowed it to fester and grow. Right. It's right? emboldened or strengthened yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think obviously we're seeing with the Me Too movement, I mean, I, 
you know, there. I, I was talking with uh, a female comedy writer and, and producer of mine, and 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 I was saying like, there's sort of an element of like, when you start to realize when when the when the whole hashtag Me Too thing came out, and you just started to realize how many women that I know that you know that you know mm-hmm. like where you just start to realize how many people have had this experience. Yeah. Um, it's sort of horrifying, right? I mean, it's kind of like as a guy. I, for me, it was really, I like, I was, I realized, oh, I've been so naive. Like, I always, I, of course, I knew about it, but I didn't realize it, that it was on this scale. Yeah. And it's the, that whole, th- so much of that behavior is so abhorrent that, um, uh, uh, look, I mean, you know, am I, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like finding out that, like, Hey, there's a significant portion of the guys that I know who are into cannibalism, and I never knew it. Like, it's just sort of like, what? How right. many? Because for every woman that wrote hashtag Me Too, there's a guy mm-hmm. who's responsible for it, and these guys are your coworkers and your friends and your brothers and your uncles and your fathers and your sons, you know. And it's that alone is just sort of like, wow, I had no idea. Because a lot of these stories, you think, um, uh, you know, it sort of seems like the the fear is part of their excitement. Like the 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 fear and pain they're causing is the rush. Well, it sounds like with Louis, that was kind of the case. I don't. Yeah, I mean, fear, I, but the 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 without their consent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a whole thing, right? Like that was for him, he was that wasn't a casual thing. That was something that he had some really twisted emotional relationship with and rushed mm. from. Yeah. You know, he got he, he was gratified by right. that. Um and uh and so, you know, I I think he kind of can't afford to take, we can't afford to take our foot off the gas with a confronting us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the same time, uh, I, I, I would also say, well, like, you know, so what are the rules then? Does he get to never work again? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, is it, it, are you, you know, there, there's, and I, I'm not saying it as I'm being devil's advocate and make it, I, I don't know the answer. I don't, is, does he have to go away forever? Okay. So nine or 11 months is not enough. So what is it? Is it three, five, 10 years? Is he right. never allowed to come back? Are we never allowed to, is it not right? And I'm not, again, I'm not, this isn't a passive aggressive way of making this point. I'm asking the question, are we not allowed to separate the person from their art? You know, uh, is that wrong? Can you, some people can, some people can't, are the people that can wrong Are the people that can't write? I, I don't know the answer to that. I think everybody has the right to make that personal mm-hmm. decision for themselves. I think, you know, I, I read the article, there was an interview with the, the, the person who owns the comedy uh, cellar in New York right. where he went up and, and they were like, you know, he made the point that like, you know, I think it's up to the audience to make that decision, mm-hmm. right? It's not up for me, the club owner to go, you're not allowed to come here. Now there were people in the audience who felt like they were ambushed. That word was used. I didn't know he was going to be here and he was here. And if I had known, I wouldn't have been here. And I think that's a fair thing to mm-hmm. say. Um, but if he's going to announce a show 
and people can either knowingly go or knowingly not go. Um, I, 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 I'm sort of of the mind to, it's not, I don't feel qualified to make that decision for everybody. I think the, the, the people and culture, we need to let that work itself out. Right. And people will decide whether or not somebody deserves redemption or doesn't deserve redemption, or they can separate it from, you know, that's sort of what this whole process is mm-hmm. about. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's gross. I, I'm, I'm close to a number of people who were affected by that and, mm-hmm. and who were victims of it. And, um, uh, I obviously feel a lot of compassion and loyalty to them and, and respect for their bravery in, in stepping up. Um, uh, but I also, I, I also don't want to be Johnny Pitchfork, you know, right. yeah, I mean, you burn raise, the witch. Like, you y- raise really good, good points and good uncomfortable questions. I was think, just thinking about that this morning. Like, well, you know, can you separate the, the, the artist from the art I would have said yes we should be able to in the past like that would always have been my position um just it could just conceptually Michael Ian Black tweeted something and I wish I knew exactly I wish I could remember it because I feel like I'm gonna bastardize it but it was something like I know I'm and I like Michael Ian Black a lot and I usually agree with him it's like I know I'm gonna catch heat for this you know what I'm just gonna find the tweet that'll make it easier Winnie Molyneux had a great one today where she was like yeah you know um uh, people who sexually assault people always spontaneously get better, you know, <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, you know, or something to that effect. And, and that is uh, entirely valid. Like you can make the case that that is a behavior that is, um, uh, sick on a level that it, it doesn't just, that's not a virus that passes through your system. You know what I mean? And you're over it. Um, but then, you know, other people would make the point that like, well, wait a minute, like, you know, and and again, I'm raising this issue. I don't know the answer to it. But somebody was like, hey, uh, Louis C.K. did 15 minutes of stand-up in front of 150 people. Chris Brown is selling out arenas to twenty or 30,000 people all the time. Uh, where do you put right. Chris Brown in... Uh, uh, the hierarchy of what he did versus what Louis did. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, obviously, he, you know, he steamrolled right through that. Yeah. You know, no, no, nobody's, the people that are bemoaning the Louis C.K. thing, um, where are they on the Chris Brown thing? Like, why are they, in his, and, I, I, you know, these are all questions yeah. that we have to answer for ourselves. So here's Michael Ian Black's tweet. And as I was scrolling down looking for this tweet, I'm seeing that, there's like a lot of tweets in response and I don't know if he walked back his position. I know he like wrote more about it on a blog and then he said he was giving a donation to something. I just saw that real fast. So this is what he said. This is this morning. I think we'll take heat for this, but people have to be allowed to serve their time and move on with their lives. I don't know if it's been long enough or his career will recover or if people will have him back, but I'm happy to see him try. Yeah. He caught so much shit for this tweet. And he was trying, I think, trying to explain that, like, I'm not, I'm not defending Louis at all. I'm just, I mean, it's the same, kind of the same thing you're talking about. Like, do, you know, are we, do we allow them a path back? How does it work? What is the time 
limit anyway. And it, I feel like normally I would agree with him. However, emotionally, my response to Louis C.K. being back on stage is just, ugh. Like, it's not enough well, time. Well, because it's short. You it's know, like look, Weinstein I, directing again. Right. I think it sort of feels as if we're forgetting. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, also, we're there, washing there wasn't it away. a mea culpa in his performance. You know, he didn't acknowledge well, that, it. Yeah. I mean, that sort of seems like a tactical error. And, and, <laughs> right. um, and uh, you know, I think, I think you can make the case for the fact that I don't think that there is any long term reviving of his career without him really addressing it in a way uh, that is sincere mm-hmm. uh, and humble. And I'm not saying that that's enough. And then he gets a pass. I'm just saying, that's it's a non-starter like you don't get to just come back and ignore it i think that's you know uh would be ridiculous right um but it's a polarizing topic i'm like i'm sure there are people listening right now who are are furious with Mm -hmm. what i said and i'm you know all i'm really trying to say is i don't know the answers but i do think that um i do think that these things have to sort of wash out like we have to come to terms with what we feel is the right way to handle this and it is a it is the collective that will determine that line right you know um i I got into a lot of trouble at a dinner party with couples that i love and adore when the aziz uh and sorry story broke and 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 i made the point that like you know to me what he did was uh while you know while i judge it and and i and i don't condone it and 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 i you know in a lot of ways find it reprehensible and and would never do anything like that it was to me a different animal than yes, harvey weinstein and it's like that you know and <clears throat> They were talking about, well, but no, but it's power and he's, and I was like, well, hold on a minute. Like, uh, taking advantage of someone and being, uh, selfish and self-serving in a sexual scenario is not the sole and exclusive territory of men, right? Like mm-hmm. they're like, and, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm not making comparisons, but sexual assault largely is. Right. You know what I mean? Um, that that kind of physical violence mm. and violating somebody, uh, you know, it is the rare exception that right. that is going to be committed by a woman. Yes. Um, but, you know, you, you look at rappers or basketball players or athletes or, you know, football players who are uh, – who 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 are targeted by women who want to have babies so that mm. they can then use that person for money. So um different different set of standards, different set of manipulation, different consequences and different sense of victimization. But I guess what I'm saying is people are assholes <laughs> and they're going yeah. to be selfish and self-serving and and look for theirs at the expense of someone else and be uncaring. I feel but, like that's most people. Right. But but violence and and um and and sexual assault mm-hmm. that is a, uh, a largely male phenomenon and that is to me what I understood the me too movement to be about confronting. Yeah. Same. There have been a few stories that have sort of snuck in under that umbrella that I feel are not that. But I also feel like if when I say that, 
a lot of people are not cool with me saying that. So I don't say it that often. I mean, there's a lot. Look, there's, you know, we, we've seen like Ryan Seacrest got investigated and he's back on the red carpet. Nobody seemed mm-hmm. to care. Aziz Ansari's show didn't get canceled and he's going back and doing stand-up. Um, you know, Chris Hardwick's yeah. back on the air. Um, you know, this isn't a black and white issue. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are instances that are. Harvey Weinstein obviously seems like a pretty clear-cut right. case of a predator. Mm-hmm. Um but there's also a lot of gray areas, man. And um, and I get the fact that there are a lot of raw feelings about it. And I get the fact that as an oppressed group of people, women in general, and especially the victims, are violently angry about it and are certainly entitled to be so. And that's something that those people uh, who who committed those acts are going to have to face. And, you know, hopefully um, that changes the the trajectory of this experience for people in the future Mm -hmm. um on a lighter note (laughs) let's uh take some questions that people sent in i have people who sent in questions on patreon and on twitter and i'm on patreon patreon.com slash allison rosen is where you go there's all sorts of fun stuff bonus content behind the scenes stuff bonus episodes a live stream you can submit your question and get ahead of the whole line so many bonuses it's 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 so many bonuses you'll have to quit your day job it's actually boni boni yeah when it's plural it's boni (laughs) it is okay let's hear some questions when we ask we send them in they're wondering how you have been so thanks so much for Okay, Lisa Lari says, I finally got a chance to watch the worst cook season that you were on. When Mindy Cohn was on Alison Rosen is your new best friend, she shared a little behind the scenes dirt, and I'm wondering if you have any. I truly loved watching you on that show and think you got robbed. Also, did you keep on cooking afterwards? And I'm tacking a question onto this, which is, is that where you got discovered for the baking show? Uh, sort of, I guess so, because it wasn't long after that they uh, asked me to do that. Um, yes, I definitely have kept on cooking. Um, I, you know, that uh, I've probably talked about this a bunch, but it was, uh, that was so much fun, such a great experience. One of the more stressful things I've ever done in my life. And Why? I think anybody who watched the show knows that. I almost had a nervous breakdown every episode. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it was just, uh, just the uh, pressure. Yeah, well, you know, and you like I, I wanted to do well, you know yeah. what I mean? I was invested in it. It's you can't people don't realize that like we were shooting 12 14 hours a day and it went on for 2 weeks. Like so you're in it every mm. day and it, then it airs over a period of weeks or months, right. but um you can't do something 12 hours a day for 2 weeks and not get consumed and into mm-hmm. it, you know what I mean? Um so uh yeah, it was uh, it was a stretch assignment, and uh, and I, uh, I I probably added a lot of gray hair and had a lot of nervous <laughs> breakdowns during that. But I had a blast. I loved uh, all the people that I'm. You know, uh, the fact that I am friends with Mike. The situation now is. <laughs> do you keep in touch with him? Yeah, I do. We text every now and do again. Do you call him Mike? Uh, I call him Sitch. <laughs> yeah, Sitch. What's up, Sitch? <laughs> uh, okay. This is sort of a challenging one. Whitney C. says, if they did an L.A. celebrity yearbook, what would you choose as the quote under your picture? 
Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, my uh, friend used to write, uh, stay in school. Um, <laughs> uh, what would, uh, uh, I, I, you know, my, um, I always go back to, I don't know if this answers this, but I, when, years ago when I was on Talk Soup, we had a, I, I, people would write in for autographs and I would just sign stacks and stacks of pictures and send them out. And, um, I always wrote, uh, on the picture one of two things. Either, um, hold on to this. It'll be worth nothing someday. <laughs> uh, or, uh, like, you know, I'd write, Dear Allison, people will see this and think we're friends. <laughs> Best wishes, John Henson. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, I guess, uh, you know, um, I'd probably write math sucks. <laughs> did you have to put a quote in your yearbook a long time I did, ago? I think I wrote something like, I think I wrote something really cheesy and stupid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think back. There's a in my old so I went to two different high schools and in one of them one of my old yearbooks there's a picture of me like break dancing which is <laughs> priceless uh like literally like doing a handstand I think um uh and then in another one I think my uh the school that I graduated from I think I literally like used a headshot and was that the private school? Yeah, and it was like, and and it ended up being like the full page. Like I was like, no, <laughs> no, shrink it! Oh god! I went to an endocrinologist today because um, my OB wants me to be seen. It. I'm a little bit hypothyroid and wants me to be seen an endocrinologist. And um, so as I was checking in, she's like, you know, you check in on an iPad. She's like, okay, I just need to take a picture of you for your file. And I said, can't? Yeah, I said, oh, can I just send my headshot? Just kidding. <laughs> And she's like, oh, you can. And so then I was like, oh, I, I'm no, you, we can just take. Right. She's like, the only person who's going to see it is the doctor. And by the way, this doctor is like screamingly attractive. Oh, that's a great, <laughs> I'm married, yeah. However. Right. Like. Right. Very, now, you're, now you're sending nudes. <laughs> yeah. Very, very cute. So I let her take, and I went there with no makeup on, um, let her just take the photo of me because it felt like it'd be really vain to sure. be like, let me pull up my headshot. No, all of a sudden, you're like a character actor from the 70s with his headshot and a dry cleaner <laughs> that's getting yellow yeah. in the window and you're exactly. going, oh, this is so sad. So, but I was sitting there from the time after she took the photo to the time they called me back thinking like, should I just send my headshot? I mean, I could. I, just... I probably have it in my email, right? I could probably just forward it. I could probably it. just get it. It's probably in my Dropbox, which right. I can pull up on I my get... phone. Let's see. Can I send... Is it going to be too high res? Right. I know. Yeah, it might be giant. But I'm sure I have like a smaller one. And I mean, only he's going to be seeing it. But then he could know like what I have the potential to look sure. like. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. So and then insane. at the bottom, it says sag after. It was so insane. <laughs> sure. So That's, I just let uh, them keep the shitty photo of me. But I really spent a long time being like, am I making the wrong call here? Listen, those are very L.A. moments. I know. Man. Well, it, you could tell it was a very L.A. situation because I was 100% joking when I said, can't I just right. send my headshot? But because we live in L.A., yeah, she was like, like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, you totally can. Yeah. People do that all the time. <laughs> I got the sense they do. There's a great Kevin Bacon movie that uh, I don't know how many people have seen called The Big Picture. I have Michael seen Bacon. it more I, than once. It's I've Fantastic. Fucking love Martin Short in that movie. <laughs> Look, Nick, 
I don't know you and I don't know your work, but I think you're fabulously talented and I'm never wrong about these oh things. Oh my God. I got um, makes me want to watch it again. I'll have a Quantro and Sodi. Um, no, but there's a great moment in there where... Uh, I'm this, not talking to you. Does yeah, that I'm not talking to you. I'll call you. Um, uh, there's a, uh, a great moment in there where, you know, uh, Kevin Bacon's character is this came out of sort of an AFI as this heralded uh, uh, filmmaker gets a big three picture deal buys a big fat house and a Porsche and stuff and then he loses his three picture <laughs> deal and uh, he's applying to be a waiter and the manager do you remember this the manager is re- looking at his resume and he goes oh I see you're a director Jimmy our busboy is a director <laughs> yes it's like a perfect <laughs> LA moment Jimmy our busboy is a director <laughs> oh god I loved that movie and Jennifer Jason Lee is in it. Yeah, it's great. Um, uh, going to see my neighbors. You remember she's like dancing the, and singing the oh, weird yeah. song, or they're the Pez people. The Pez people. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should go see that movie. It's is Michael McKean great. In it? Michael McKean is in. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Amber Lewis, what ideals did you hold as a younger person, but no longer have as an adult? Wow. Uh. That's interesting. Um, Ideals. I don't know if these would be ideals, but I had visions of my life, uh, visions of who I would be as an adult. Um, Like, I remember being in high school being like, dude, I'm totally going to smoke pot with my kids. Like, you (laughs) know, I remember being that guy and, um, and, uh, and just being like, I'm never going to stop partying, you know, like, you know, just, uh, uh, I think, um, I think I thought I would be somebody who took life a lot less seriously as mm-hmm. an adult, you know? Um, but ideals Was that based on not wanting to become like so-and-so and like so-and-so and like, not- I just think I, I had the, like, I romanced that kind of Peter Pan syndrome mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. just, I'm going to live in a state of arrested adolescence right. forever. And this is, you know, who I am. And I'm, I'm the guy that's never going to take things seriously. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to be a grown up Spicoli. You right. Know? Um, and, uh, and then I just sort of outgrew it, you know? Um, and then you, um, yeah. I mean, ideals, uh, I think I probably, uh, I think if, if anything, it's like ideals that I didn't have as a kid that are very important to me now. Like what? Um, like integrity, you know what I mean? Honesty, integrity, accountability, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know humility gratitude you know stuff that seems sort of boring and mm-hmm. and uh self-helpy but uh they they um you know i think i've talked to you about did i talk to you about the letter that my dad wrote me the I grandkids i don't think so my dad uh when my dad turned 80 um now i i've described some very sort of tough stories on this uh podcast over the years about my dad but um i I have enormous respect for my dad he's probably the most important person in my life uh outside of my wife and kids obviously and and um uh but i have profound respect for him he is a he's a throwback to a different generation Mm. of of people of people in this country and and um 
but he's not an introspective guy. And when he was 80, he wrote a letter to his grandchildren. It was like three or four pages. And it was basically everything that he knew that made him happy and fulfilled and a success. I love that. Um, and uh, I may even have it on my phone. Um, but there is a... Send it to my endocrinologist. <laughs> <laughs> um there is a uh there is this great um thing that he wrote that uh the older I have gotten the um the more important it has become to me. Um and uh and it's the kind of thing that you just don't hear uh a lot anymore. Like this to me was very profound. Being in the autumn of my life, I have uh, devoted time to reflection. What have I learned? What personal commitments I believe it takes to be successful? What I treasure in my life and the values I greatly respect? And he goes on uh, a little down the page to say, um, what is important to you? What goals do you have for your life? What is it going to take in personal effort to achieve them? And are you prepared to devote your time, energy, and effort to make your dreams a reality? And this is a sentence that stands out to me. What values do you respect in others and therefore would like in yourself? Have you defined non-negotiable aspects of character you are committed to uphold? I think about that non-negotiable aspects of character you are committed to uphold. You know, I think we live in a world where people's moral compass is very flexible depending on whether or not it suits them in that moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad is a guy who lived and died by his idea of right and wrong. You know, <sighs> at the risk of taking this into a weird political place, look at a guy like John McCain. Like John McCain was being fucking tortured <laughs> in a POW camp at Hanoi Hilton. And they found out his dad was an admiral, admiral and they offered to send him home. And he said, I won't go home before my brothers in arms. And he stayed there for years being tortured. Like, how many people do you know are willing to endure that to adhere to their idea of ethics? And um, not I. Yeah, I mean that's right. Like that's the real deal. And mm -hmm. I think we can all agree, whether you're on the left or the right, that that is absent in yeah. today's politics. So, um, so that's the kind of thing that just wasn't. And I hope this answers this person's question. That's the kind of shit so. that I just didn't think about when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And now I think about um I think about who I am and that idea of like uh character is what you do when no one's watching. Mm -hmm. You know, uh there's a great quote somebody said, um uh uh years from now your children um will forget your advice, but follow your example. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, um, I, I think I've talked about this, but like when I, when I turned 50, my wife, uh, put a little book together with, uh, with, uh, people writing things that they loved about me. And at the time, my five-year-old son wrote, 
I love that I can believe him. Oh. And that's so important to me. You yeah. know, that 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 people know that they can count on me and they can count on me to be uh, you know, true to to, to my moral compass. Mm. Very broad question, but what kind of but it's just something that's been on my mind in my own life. What kind of parent are you? Um I I think am a uh I, I aspire to be a um, patient and loving and supporting parent. Um, you know, I feel, I identify with my kids. So like when my kid's having a tantrum, uh, you know, or he's upset about something or he's really angry, I know from my own experience that if I'm really caught up in an emotion, it's very hard for me to move on or let go of that until I feel heard, until I feel like somebody can look at me and be like, I get it. I get it. I hear you. I understand you. And I am, you know, I have felt that way. And that releases me from this prison of being like, don't you understand my point of view? And so, um, uh, I I try to be a guy that will, um, you know, walk the line of like, I don't want to be a pushover, but I also want my kids to feel safe. I want them to feel like, um, uh, I think you can set a boundary for a kid without being punitive about it, mm-hmm. without without criticizing and making them feel bad or wrong or showing them anger or resentment. Now, look, I'm a human being and I get pissed just like anybody else. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I, um, you know, I think it means something when you can, when you can sit down in front of a five-year-old or a seven-year-old and go, Hey, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Did that scare you when I raised my voice? That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I apologize, you know, or, conversely like i hear you i know you're upset and um i i felt that way and and um i'm sorry you're feeling that way and how can i help you you know and and uh you know and 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 not trying to tell kids like this is the way you're supposed to behave or feel or so do it this way mm-hmm. but sort of helping them navigate through that themselves and find their own uh their own path um and I think, you know, uh, I love being around my kids. Like they're, you know, they're my best friends. Yeah. It's, it's so Elliot is 19 months now, but he's really kind of coming into the toddler mm-hmm. phase. And it all of a sudden it's bringing up all these things for me where I'm realizing like, well, like, you know, if there's something that's coming up that he doesn't want to do, I'll say, okay, you know, I'm going to count 10 and then we're doing this or, and then we're doing that. Or like I'm going to count 10 and then I'm taking the, that away. And then I count to 10 and I know that he's going to, and oftentimes he he's not given the phone or an iPad very often, but every now and then he will have it. And then it's always like, okay, you know, I'm going to count 10 and then I'm taking it away. And as I get closer to 10, like, I don't want to take it away because I know he's going to freak out, but I know that I have to, because I said, I, I'm like this is what, how it's going to yeah, go. Yeah, you got to follow through. Yes, but that's hard through. for me. And it's look, he's at an age where he only has so much ability to even conceptualize the idea of consequences yeah. and and stuff like that. You know, as kids get older, um, 
you know, that game changes a little bit. And there are times where I'll say to my kid, like, like, you know, um, I call my son dude a lot and he calls me dude, which <laughs> oh, I'm not sure cute. if that's good or bad. <laughs> I think that's cute. Uh, but I was like, dude, like I, I've told you this five times now, like just so you know, I'm going to raise my voice. And when I do, it's going to upset you. Like you're, you're, you're going to be unhappy and it's coming. Mm-hmm. So you have that opportunity. Now is the time to change your behavior because I'm letting you know we're at that point where I'm going to lose my patience, you know? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But even if he presses beyond that and he, like, you know, I think it, I think he starts to realize like, oh, I, I'm starting to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's helping me understand. Like you're walking right up to a consequence here. Right. Uh, you, the dude thing. My I, my son woke up in the middle of the night the other night, and he goes, uh, "Daddy, can I have water?" And you know, we only give the kids like a half drunk bottle of water because we don't want them to spill it. So right. uh, I I went down and got him like a little bit of water, and I came back and I had a water for me and a water for my wife. So I handed him like this, like a little inch and a half of water <laughs> and I'm holding two. And he drinks the whole thing and he looks at me, it's three in the morning and he goes, dude, you get like unlimited waters. <laughs> and I thought that was so hilarious at a seven-year-old at three in the morning. Dude, you get like unlimited waters. <laughs> that is very funny. And he's keying right in on the inequality. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, And then lastly of the Patreon questions, Holly Thompson says, did you try the course on Wipeout and was anyone ever seriously injured? Uh, No, I never tried the course on Wipeout and I didn't for very good reason. I don't know if you ever watched the show and watched what happened to people who did try the course. Uh, As I like to say, um, every day that I went to work, I saw a series of very convincing arguments to (laughs) never try running the course. Were you tempted? Uh, Never. Never. No. Uh Uh-uh. Not for me. And I know so many people, like, I got a buddy, Jason, who was like, dude, you know, like, just, I don't even need to be on the show. I just want to run the course. And I'm like, that is so fucking stupid. <laughs> like, you see what happens to people and you're like, no, I don't need the opportunity to win 50 grand. <laughs> right. I just want to get jacked up. <laughs> like, it, like, ugh. That is hilarious. Okay. And now, uh, some Twitter questions. Mr. Natalie wants to know, any new tattoos? Yes. Uh, uh, a sizable one on my chest. What is it? I got uh, I got a um an anchor, uh, in the in the right here in the center Sternum. of my chest. Very, very uh sensitive place. Mm. Uh, and then a banner that says "Hold fast," which is an old nautical term. Um, a lot of people think "hold fast" means "hold on." Mm-hmm. Um. And there are certainly people who colloquially use it that way, and I think that applies. But um, traditionally, in in a, in a maritime sense, hold fast means stop what you're doing. Mm. Stop what you're doing. Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, I have it on my chest next to uh, uh, four, uh, a Roman numeral four for the, my wife and my two kids, and uh, the last two lines of a W.B. Yeats poem called The Song of Wandering Angus. Um, and to me, it sort of represents um, uh, my family and uh, my uh, creative pursuits and uh, and sort of my um, 
these are the things that ground me to the earth. These are, these are the things that, uh, um, like keep me tethered, uh, to my, my mm-hmm. world. And the four is for the four of you. Yep. The four of us, my wife and my two kids and I, but when I got this tattoo, uh, <laughs> so first of all, I've my tattoo artist and I started adding it up and I've spent like 40 hours on her table over the wow. last like 12 years. And um and I find it uh you know people are always like does it hurt? I'm like yeah, it fucking hurts. That's the whole point, you know? Like you got to like if it didn't hurt everybody would do it, mm-hmm. you know? Um but I find it kind of meditative. Like you have, I find to get through it, like you, if you're going to sit for a four hour tattoo session, you just have to find a happy place. Like you got to check out, right. you know what I mean? And, and find this sort of meditative place where the, where the, the physical discomfort recedes into the background. Mm. And, uh, I, whatever I got into the zone <laughs> and, uh, all of a sudden I went, whoa, I think I just fell asleep. And my tattoo artist looked at me and she goes, yeah, you did. What the fuck is wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know, man. I just started getting good to me. Um, but when I came home, my wife looked at it and she goes, oh, okay. I think we're done now. And uh, and I go, why? Why? No more tattoos? And she goes, no, it's just, it's it's starting to get a little prison gangy. That was her words. It's starting to get a little prison gangy. I was like, you say that like it's a bad thing. But, you know, nobody ever would expect it because I keep it all hidden, right. you know. Um, was that the most painful one? I expected from like right on the breastplate of people made like my tattoo artist when I told her where I wanted to get it, she shivered like she went, Ugh, and I was like, <laughs> that's not a good reaction yeah. from someone who gives tattoos for a living. Um, you know, it it is a very it is known for being a very painful place. I was prepared for like Civil War surgery. Mm. Yes, it was more sensitive, but I, I you know, I, I didn't have to tap out or anything. Then, uh, you know, like, I thought that was badass, dude. I just met an, a guy the other day, a tattoo artist uh, named Josh, and he had his armpit tattooed. And mm. I was like, that's savage. You know, <laughs> yeah. he has, like, his skull done. And, right. uh, you know, so everything's relative. My wife thinks I have a lot of tattoos. A guy like that is like, you're adorable <laughs> with your little tattoos. Right, with your tramp stamp. Yeah. Um, what's the least painful place, do you know? What's considered like, uh, one you know, painful. like anything on the bone hurts, mm-hmm. um, and the more meaty the area, uh, uh, I think the easier that it is. Like, it. I, you know, I've I, I fell asleep when they did my shoulder. You know, I think part of that is because they had just done like four hours on my back, and I mm. was like so tense. But um, uh, you know, there are certain places where you can you know tune it out. Robert Paulson says, will he ever give up on the Knicks and get on with his life? He has a family that loves him and needs him. I know that guy. Put down Uh, the remote and step away from the MSG network. It's going to be okay. You know what, dude? I can't do it. I I bleed blue and orange. I'm a Knicks fan till death. Uh, I I moved out here in 95 right as the Lakers were getting ready to rip off a three-peat. And, um, you know, it's just not in me to, to... to be a turncoat. I, I grew up a Knicks fan and, um, you know, maybe in my son's lifetime. And this one just came in. Jake Breeden says, I love his political tweets. Does he feel being openly anti-Trump has been good, bad, or neutral for him professionally? I think probably all three. I mean, I think there, I, I don't have a ton of Twitter followers and, and, um, uh, you know, I have sort of a love hate relationship with Twitter, but uh, yeah, I am. I think I'm guilty of being almost exclusively uh, political in 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 my. 
Twitter life now for a while, for a couple of years. And, and, uh, and, you know, um, uh, I'm sure that there are a lot of people, you know, and people have expressed over the years, like, dude, come on, man, just be a comic. And it's like, people eh. on Twitter have expressed yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like just, you know, and I've had friends that I respect greatly who are like, dude, you know, you're going to alienate half your audience. You're going to lose half your audience. And I'm sure that there's truth to that. But, um, you know, I've, I've answered this question on Twitter over the years, but it, it you know, I, I am not going to be a guy that when my kids grow up and asked me what I did during this time that I said I kept my mouth shut because I was afraid it would cost me money. Mm-hmm. You know, I was afraid it would cost me followers. Fuck that. You know, um, I think we're, you know, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that we're, we're, we're in a, um, a grave struggle for the direction of this country. And, uh, uh, I don't have a big voice, but, uh, I, I feel the need to use it. Yeah. Same. It feels like a responsibility to speak about what the, f- about what's going on. Yeah. It feels like a, a moral obligation. And, and, um, and I, you know, I think that's probably why I created this, uh, format that, uh, that I'm going to do pilots for. And I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of expectation of it going anywhere, but I feel passionately about it. I feel like I have to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it reminds me almost of stand up where it was like, I wasn't doing stand up because I felt like it was going to go anywhere. I just felt like I had to do it. And, and that, you know, this is something where I feel like I, I got, I got to, um, I have to, I have to try regardless of where it goes. I gotta, I gotta throw my hat in the ring. I'm excited for it. Thank you. Will I get to see it? Uh, maybe uh, on DVD at my house. <laughs> uh, I, it will not be for air. Uh, so the pilots will, are yeah, not airing. No, no, no. It's a, it's a, well, the way syndication works so is they'll shoot pilots and then they'll take it out and try to sell it. And people from the you know uh, conservative parts of the country will go, I hate this and it won't sell. And then I'll be back here going, yeah, I'm going to do something else now. <laughs> read English off a teleprompter and, you know. John Henson, it was so good catching up with you. It was Please. really good to see you. Uh, congratulations Thank you. on so many new developments Thank in your life. Thank you. You're, you're turning into a grown-ass woman. <laughs> That's true. I am. Um Please come back and do a Thursday show soon. I would love to. I miss you guys. I haven't seen you in a while. I I'm know. Ready. I'm, uh, I would lo- Who are the people that you play with now? Uh, so it sort of switches around, but did you ever meet Renee Colvert? I don't think I was did. You, were you on with her? She's on pretty regu- regularly. Okay. And then David Huntsberger is on often. And then we have other... Who's, he's a comedian. Did you meet him? I think he him? was in yeah. the live show, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and Jordan, who is also at the live show, is on yeah. from time to time. Um, and then people kind of yeah it's sort of it, it, it's not a set group like it was although i guess when you were doing it before it wasn't really it was sort of in flux then a yeah, bit it was too. always al and yeah um, jenna and jenna and they're uh, in georgia now i know jenna I has another them. baby no way mm-hmm. look at you guys yeah with the breeding right well maybe she'd already she has two children right I don't know. They had one and we're expecting another. Yes, that one has arrived. That one has happened. (laughs) It it happened. That baby has happened. Yes, I think she was actually born, I think I announced it at PodFest, so you were at that show. Right. It was a long time ago. Um, Yes, you got to come back. 
Would love to. Thank you for having me. Please tell everybody I said hi and give my love to Dequans on the snap. I will. Uh, tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, you can find me at John underscore Henson at twitter.com. I'll be hosting the uh, Rocky Mountain Emmys in Phoenix on September 22nd. Um, and uh, you can find me uh, on, on, the, on the blogosphere. You can find me in, in the interwebs. And maybe one day they can listen to your podcast. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm. I'm I have you been intending to launch for a while a podcast called John Henson as a grown ass man, all about uh, what it means to grow up and and what that means at every different stage of life. My theory is like every ten years. Uh, like w- when you're 20, you're like, oh my God, I am so much more mature than when I was a kid. It's ridiculous. Now I know what's going on. And then when you're 30, you go, what an asshole <laughs> I was when I was 20. I, now I figured it out. Yeah. Like, you know, and then when you're 40, you go, what a fucking moron I was at 30, you know? So it's like, it's just a, an evolutionary mm-hmm. process that everybody goes through. And I find it kind of interesting to talk to people about what, that means for them what the signs of what they consider their maturity are right. and how they've evolved over the years. I spend a lot of time lately thinking about the idiot that I was in my early 20s. Dude, I was an idiot into my late 40s. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> like that, uh, there is no statute of limitations right. on my idiocy. Yeah. I guarantee you, in 10 years, I'll be going, what oh, an asshole <laughs> when I sat on Allison Rosen's podcast. And, um, no, but uh, thank you so much for having me and congrats on your new home. Thank you. Thank you. You guys, I have a book out, Tropical Attire and Courage and Other Phrases That Scare Me. Go to my website, AllisonRosen.com. Plenty of places to click. It'll take you right to Amazon where you can buy it. Available in all formats. Um, follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen, Instagram, Allison Rosen. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe, leave us a nice comment. Five stars is my favorite. Uh, and t-shirts, ringtones, et cetera, on my website, AllisonRosen.com. Thank you again for doing the show. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen show? 